0: Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fifth chapter, verses 12 through 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And may the Lord truly bless the, not just the, the surface meaning, the straightforward meaning, but the underlying symbolic meaning of this to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Lord, we know that without your Holy Spirit directing us and guiding us, these are just words on a page but we also know that they are words that save. These are words that redeem. These are words that explain to us in a beautiful way what the good news is. And so I, I pray that you will give me the words to try as best as I can to, to express that and then fill in all of the gaps that I know will be there and people's understanding that So that they can see this beautiful image that is before us and just simply celebrate your great redemption. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the story that we have before us this morning is a a very simple one. It's very straightforward. In fact, it happens all through the Gospels. A desperately ill man or a man with a great disability comes to Jesus and asks to be healed. And Jesus says the word and heals them and the person goes on their way. So in and of itself, there we've already actually seen in the book of Luke quite a few of these kinds of healings. But what makes this one so special and actually the one we're going to look at next week is not just the story of the healing, but where it is located in Luke's gospel. Um, what he's explaining or illustrating for us. Now, we saw last week that he illustrated something with a story. Now we're seeing something else, and I'll explain what else illustrated for us in the three passages that are going to continue out through this chapter. Um, let's let's kind of go back and, and, and recognize what we have seen so far. So far, we have seen the methodology of the ministry of Christ, the kind of Messiah he's going to be and what he came to do as Messiah. Now, towards that end, one of the most important passages that we've read was the quote that Jesus made from the book of of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, in the synagogue in Nazareth when he read these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what he's doing is he is reading to us the kind of Messiah that he has come to be. And then, of course, he tells the people in the synagogue today, this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am that Messiah. But at at this particular point in time, he's talking about good news, but he really hasn't defined what that good news is. In other words, he has said that, well, it is going to be setting the captives free. It is going to be opening the eyes of the blind. It is going to be proclaiming liberty to those who are oppressed and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, to, to wipe out the ledger of, of, of the guilt of people. So, I, I mean, we have a, a broad understanding, but up until this point, we have been looking at it from the perspective of What Jesus came to do now he gets very specific about that at the end of the fourth chapter we've read this also several times when he says after a night of unprecedented healing actually a day of unprecedented healing he slips away to a desolate place they find him and this is what he says I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. Now, up until this point, we've been talking about the good news as what Jesus has come to do. We've, we've, we've seen the emphasis that He places on it, that the healings are important, we want we don't want to devalue them, but they are there to authorize the, or to authenticate the messenger and His message. They're the one-two punch, if you will, of apostling. But Up until this point, Luke has not done, at least in my seeing, he hasn't done what some of the other gospel writers like John immediately did, which is to tell us specifically what the good news is. Luke is just talking about the good news. He hasn't really defined, well, specifically, what is that good news? Because you remember John in the very first chapter, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He explains to us Matthew in his first chapter, his name will be Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. John, once again, again in his first chapter to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, in other words, the other Gospels, for some reason, have told us early on what the what the, the purpose of, of the of the ministry of Jesus is going to end up in. But Luke hasn't until this point. And that's. I don't know if you remember, but when I first started talking about apostling and the whole methodology of what Jesus came to do, I said, this is not the full picture of Jesus' ministry. There is another aspect Jesus came to search for and save the lost. I mean, he is our savior, so he's going to go to the cross and he's going to accomplish something for us on that cross. That's another part of his ministry. And I believe that Luke now, in these two healings... And then in sort of the summation that follows about the, the new wine and the old wineskins, he's going to explain to us exactly what that good news is. And I hope to bring it out for you because it truly is glorious. We'll, get, we'll take half of it the, this week, the, the the story of the leper. And then next week, we'll take the story of the paralytic. And this week, we're going to talk about the imputed righteousness that Jesus gives us. Next week, we'll talk about the forgiveness of sins. So with that, let's jump into the text and uh, see this truly amazing analogy uh, story of the healing of a man with leprosy. Look in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, now I should pause there real quickly and just explain something to you about the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them synoptic because they're so similar to each other. In fact, all three carry this exact story. A lot of the language is word for word identical, but the idea is the same. What is different is that the different gospel writers put them in different places in their gospel. Mark talks about this in his opening chapter. Matthew doesn't have this healing until after Jesus has taught the Sermon on the Mount and is on his way back back down the mountain and confronts this man. And Luke places it here. Now, even those skeptics like to point that out and say inconsistencies in Scripture, it is nothing of the kind. The, the, the Gospels were never designed to be a, a sequential travelogue of the events of Jesus' life. He woke up this morning, he did this, he did that in the afternoon, he got up the next morning, he did this. That, that's not the focus of the Gospels at all. The Gospels are telling the story of salvation and redemption and what God is accomplishing through his Messiah. And so they organize it according to what they're trying to get across. And that's the reason Luke has this here. After this discussion of what Jesus is going to do as far as preaching the good news. So this is just an arbitrary designation of time during his Galilean ministry. But anyway, while he was in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, Luke is the only one who uses that designation that he was Full of leprosy. And that's more than likely because Luke's a physician. And what he's telling us is this man didn't have a little spot of leprosy on his arm. He was consumed by it. The disease was in an advanced state in this man. Now, we should probably pause here for another moment. You're going to say, is this what you're going to do all morning is pause? Well, these first two, first two, two uh, verses are really important. But we should talk about leprosy in general because leprosy in scripture actually is a word that can be used for a variety of skin conditions, some of them mild, some of them like this one, extremely serious. This particular kind of leprosy that this man is consumed with is what we think of when we think of leprosy. Actually, it's called Hansen's disease after a Norwegian scientist who in 1873 discovered that it was caused by bacteria. And so that's the reason it's called Hansen's disease. It really wasn't until the 1940s that they began to eradicate it from at least the more advanced countries in the world. But nonetheless, it's a horrible disease. it's, It's it's not what a lot of people think. A lot of people think it eats away your skin, but it really doesn't. It's a bacteria that attacks the skin, the nerves, the joints, the mucous membranes. It does horrible things to the face, causes it to puff, puff up, the nose to sometimes collapse. That's why it's called lion's disease sometimes. Lesions form all over the skin where the, it is. And, and what, the reason people think it, it eats the skin away is because It destroys the nervous system and you can't feel your arms or your extremities. And so they tend to literally just wear them down because they can't feel when they are damaging them. It's an horrific disease. Now, we want to make sure that we see it in its fullness here this morning because I'm going to present it as a symbolic disease, as an analogy. So I want to make sure that we see it in its fullness. The first thing we want to see about this disease is that it was an incurable disease physically. When, when you got leprosy of this nature, it was basically A a, a death warrant. Um, People did not recover from this kind of leprosy. It could not be healed. And and so it was devastating. Um, When several instances of of leprosy in scripture, but one in particular in in the book of Numbers, when Miriam was as a punishment for her rebellion against God, um, received um, leprosy a short while, but she received it nonetheless. And Aaron, her brother, cried out at that time, Time. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away. It, it literally, you were a walking, talking corpse when you had uh, a, a leprosy of this nature, especially If it was the man was full of leprosy. So we're talking about something that was absolutely untreatable. But if the physical pain and suffering that a leper went through wasn't enough. The only way that they could deal with it in those days was separation. To literally cast them out of society and force them out of the camp. Leviticus puts it this way. He, the one who is leprous, shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. And so, therefore, there was a complete social segregation that occurred. You wouldn't have communication or a relationship with anyone within the covenant community. All of these are kind of important little little statements. You wouldn't have any fellowship within the covenant community. You would be thrown outside of the camp. But the third thing that was probably the the most substantial and the worst is that you were seen to be under the curse of God that That the reason that you had leprosy was because God had cursed you now one of the reasons for this is because r- quite often in the Old Testament, especially God would use leprosy as a punishment, going back to that numbers um, passage with with Miriam uh, I mean she had rebelled, and when the cloud came upon them and then dispersed, well she is left completely covered with leprosy as if it 's white as snow, so therefore. It was sometimes levied as a curse by God, once again, an important detail. Not always, but that's the way that it was perceived to be something that was the person who was a leper was indeed under God's curse. Now, what's important for us this morning is the symbolic nature of that disease, In a very real sense, a leper was of the same sort of situation as Lazarus was in in John 11. Remember, Lazarus was dead and in the tomb for four days. He was a four-day man. And after four days, the body has started to uh, decompose. It's going to smell. That's what Martha said to Jesus. Don't open the door. It's going to smell the high heavens. It was unrecoverable. Well, in the Hebrew way of seeing things... The, the leper was per- virtually on the same level, a little bit less defiling than that, but nonetheless, it was of the same level, except what made it worse is you're walking. You're the walking dead. You, you see? And, 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 and the physical nature of it separated you from the community, but not just from the community, it separated you from God because you were under God's curse. You, 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 you see how close this, this, this metaphor, this analogy of this poor, pitiful man representing, and, and I, I know this is going to offend some of you, representing you. You and I are this leper, and, and just go ahead and get that through your edge because that 's the analogy that is being made spiritually speaking. We are this leper, we are defiled, we are incapable of helping ourselves, we are outside the camp, we are under the curse of God in our natural state, so the leper is us and the way that we're going to see this this morning. So it is indeed a profound illustration of, of what Paul said in Ephesians. You know famously we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Well in this case we're the walking dead. Because we're walking living spiritual corpses. And that of course is the situation that the man is in. Now. With that as the definition of leprosy, let's go ahead and see what the man does. Still in 12th verse. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face. There's that phrase again. We've been talking about that a lot lately, haven't we? That he fell on his face. Now, actually, that was illegal. He he really shouldn't have done that. You know, he's supposed to to avoid Jesus at all costs because he's a leper and he knows he's a leper. And he's not supposed to be anywhere near any person who's non-leprous. But, I mean... Seriously, what does the man have to lose? What are they going to do, uh, you know, kick him out, uh, kill him? He well, would like to be killed at this particular point. That is how horrible that disease actually was. So he, he, he falls down at Jesus' feet. Now, you say, okay... Fine for him. He's a leper. What else is he going to do? Yeah, he's he's living in a time when they didn't know how to heal this. It's an incurable disease. And the only thing that stands before him is a miserable, suffering life and a grisly death. That's all that he has to look forward to. So, So, of course, he's going to fall down at Jesus' feet and ask to be healed. But, brothers and sisters, that is exactly the point. That is the point. Because that is us. We don't have any more capability of saving ourselves or fixing the disease that consumes us, which is the disease of sin and our fallenness. We have no more ability to help ourselves, to fix ourselves than that poor, pitiful leper. And so therefore, when... He falls down at the feet of Jesus. What he is doing is teaching us a lesson. Brothers and sisters, this is the example of a penitent sinner. This is the one that God will listen to. This is the one who is establishing the relationship between him and the only one who can save him. The proper relationship of submission and repentance. And that's when he begs for mercy. That's all he can do. Well, that's the best thing that he can do is to beg for mercy. And so we read that he begged him and he refers to him as Lord. Now, I want you to remember just four verses ago, we saw Peter in the boat when he came face to face with the holiness and the divinity of Christ. What did he do? He dropped down on his knees at Christ's knees and he said, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is the exact same, I mean, this is almost an illustration of the kind of a burden of guilt and sin that Peter knew he carried when he fell down before Jesus. Well, this leprosy is a very poignant illustration of that. So he begs for mercy and he refers to Jesus Christ in the same word that Peter used, kurios, Lord. That that is an acceptance of the divinity in the context in which it is used. You see, he knows the same thing that Peter knows. He knows that there's only one Lord and that Lord can save him. And so he throws himself down in absolute and complete submission before this Lord. And he begs his mercy. That is all that he can possibly do. But that again is exactly the best thing. That he can possibly do. So he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. He says. Lord. If you will. You can make me clean. <laughs> I love this phrase. I mean this is just so beautiful. Lord. If you will. You can make me clean. Let's go to the end of the sentence. And work our way back. This is kind of the crux of, the, of this morning. First of all, notice that he doesn't say, Lord, if you will, you can heal me or, or you can make me whole or you can cure me. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the reason for that is there's the dual aspect of leprosy. On the one hand, it's the terrible physical aspect of it. It has eaten him alive, you know, and creating this terrible situation in him. But also it makes him unclean. In in other words, and I mentioned this just briefly before, the most defiled thing on the planet, as far as Hebrews were concerned, was a dead human corpse. Okay, touch a dead human corpse and you're defiled. The second most defiled entity was a leper. I mean, a leper was so unclean, so defiled, so profane that scripture actually says this about them. It says that um, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry unclean, unclean. You see, that's what the leper should have done with Jesus. He should have stood at a far distance and said, unclean. Just like Peter said, don't look at me. Depart from me, O Lord. I don't want you to see my uncleanness. And yet he throws himself at the the Savior's feet because he knows that the Savior can save him. That brings out the second thing. Notice what he says. If you will, you can make me clean. It appears that this leper has a degree of faith and, 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 and he doesn't seem to have any doubt in his mind that Jesus is capable or has the power to cure him. But where did he get that faith? You need to ask yourselves these kinds of questions. Where did that faith come from? And what was it? Something that he gained sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning? Did, did he follow him around and watch him heal other people? Where on earth does the kind of faith that creates a, a man who will break the law, throw himself down, putting Jesus at risk with his own disease, and say, "I know you can heal me. I know in the very fiber of my body that you can heal me"? That kind of faith, brothers and sisters, is a gift. As we just saying, or as Rick just saying, it's a gift. That doesn't come naturally. That's not our normal inclination. This is a gift of God. The same kind of thing that when Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven has revealed that to you. This man, I believe, is approaching Jesus with the faith that only God can give. And that is absolutely, to me, it is made clear by what the man says first, backing up. He says, if you will, talk about a desperate man. Is there any man more desperate than this leper? I mean, he, he has nothing in front of him but death and, and, and suffering. And. And instead of saying, Jesus, man, look at the situation I'm in have compassion on me. Can't you do something? I have faith and I want you to heal me. Instead of doing any of that, he actually goes to Jesus and says, if you will. And and the New American Standard translates that if you are willing. And basically what he is saying when he says, kurios, Lord, if you will. He is saying, if it is your sovereign will to heal me, I know that you can. Implicit in that statement is if it's not your sovereign will. Then not my will, but your will be done. This is a profound statement from this desperate man. If you Will. If you will it to be so, if you in your sovereignty look at me and have compassion on me, then I know that I will be made clean. Two things that I want you to see here. Two things that are very important. Brothers and sisters, this is an illustration of how the contrite penitent sinner comes before Jesus and gets hurt. First of all, he's on his face. Absolute, complete and total submission. Okay, Lord, curios. If you will. If it is your sovereign will. There's not a hint of me in this. There's not a hint of I'm going to force you into a box. I'm going to name it and claim it. And I'm going to say that because I have faith you are bound to save me. None of that. He's flat on his faith in, face in absolute, complete and total submission to Christ. He's surrendered. And the second thing that brings out is there's none of him in this. And he knows it. He knows his desperate situation. He knows there's nothing in front of him but suffering and death. And he knows that there is nothing in his power that he can do to make it right. He cannot force Jesus to heal him even with his belief that he can. He recognizes that it is the sovereign will of Christ and that he has absolutely no participation in it. What a great statement. What an amazing lesson we have learned from a lowly leper who falls at the feet of Jesus and shows us what true repentance and humility and reverence and deference really is to the son of God, the one who can heal him. But I don't think even the leper expected Jesus to do what he did next. Look at the 13th verse, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Are you kidding me? That's the way you communicate leprosy, either through touch or through breath. And so, therefore, the law, brothers and sisters, read Leviticus 5. The law states you don't touch anything unclean like that, even if you do it by accident. Now, You may have missed this just reading through it. But we actually have a major problem here. All of us. This is major. This is no small thing that Jesus does here. Because Leviticus, the law states, you shall not touch anything that is unclean. Well, there's nothing more unclean than this leper and Jesus touches him. So is Jesus breaking the law? You know what happens if he breaks the law? Leviticus 5 says you have to do all these different sacrifices. You have the, I have the guilt and the sin offerings so that your guilt and your sin will be taken away from you. Well, guess what happens if Jesus has any guilt, any sin, anything less than perfection? He cannot be a sacrificial, substitutional atonement for us. And if he is not a sacrificial, substitutional atonement, then you're still in your sins. And so am I. Meaning we're not saved. Meaning that we have no righteousness because he didn't live a perfect life. So this is big. Is Jesus breaking the law? Well, of course not. So why? Why on earth would he do this? Well, two reasons that come to mind. First, to show his compassion. Jesus was a compassionate healer. He had compassionate compassion when he saw the suffering that people were going through. Remember how he healed Peter's mother-in-law? He rebuked the fever, knowing that the fever is caused by the presence of sin in our lives. And it was the sin that made him angry. We're going to see more of that next week. But he rebukes. He, he, he is, has compassion. And, and he hovers over Peter's mother-in-law. And he takes her by the hand and he heals her. So, on one sense, in one sense, it, it is a show of Jesus' compassion. But in another sense, this is hugely important as far as what Jesus came to do. Do you remember the fifth chapter of Matthew, kind of at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was talking about the law? Remember what he said. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets by law and prophets. He's talking about the scriptures as they were then, the whole Old Testament scripture. I did not come to abolish it, but what? To fulfill it. You see, Jesus came to not do away with the law of Moses. not, not not, Not to push it out and say, we are no longer bound by any of those laws. He came to perfect it. So in other words, the law of Moses says you're unclean. Jesus says, I've come to make you clean. The law of Moses says that you have to be separated and thrown outside of the camp. Jesus says, I've come to reconcile you and bring you back into the camp. The law of Moses says that you have no righteousness. You are condemned and you are under the curse of God. Jesus came to say that I am completing all of that when I go to the cross on your behalf. So in other words, it's a better law. It's the fulfillment, it's the completion, it's the consummation of the law. So no, he's not breaking the law. He's showing the compassion of a God who wants fellowship once again with those who have been alienated from him because of sin. To give them righteousness that they will need in order to have relationship with the Holy God. So no, Jesus is not uh, breaking the law He's fulfilling it in a glorious way. And and that's why, brothers and sisters, I mean, we have this pericope or this passage. We're going to talk about righteousness. Next week, we have another passage, the paralytic. We're going to talk about forgiveness of sins. And then the next week, Jesus is going to say, hey, this is the new administration, the new covenant, and you simply cannot put the old, the new wine in the old wineskins. So we have to redo and rethink things. That, brothers and sisters, is is... What Luke is telling us, those are the illustrations he's given us. Well, anyway, we read that immediately the leprosy left him. That's the way Jesus healed. Once again, going back to the the way that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? That's exactly the way he healed her. He he, he, he rebuked the, the fever and instantly, immediately, she was up. And not only up, she was serving them. Well, the same thing here. He he, he not only eradicates the disease, though, here's a very strong point. This is one that John MacArthur makes, and I I think it's almost central here. Modern medicine can cure leprosy. Okay, we've got a cure. We can eradicate the disease. We can stop the bacteria from living. But modern medicine cannot restore the body to where it was. The effects of that that, um, leprosy will remain forever unless plastic surgery or some other kind of surgical things are done. In other words, we we can eradicate the disease, we can get rid of it, but we can't do the restoration. And when Jesus heals immediately, not, not only... Is, is the man, is, is the, 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 the sin gone? I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. The disease gone. Not only is the disease cured, but also he's restored to the same place that he was before he had the disease. And that's how Jesus is going to send him to see the priests. So in other words, we have a real complete total hearing. I mean, healing. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. But that's good news, All right? You see, Luke, how he's illustrating the good news for us. He's telling us what the good news is, but he's not finished. Because Jesus, in the next verse, really confuses um, a lot of the scholars when he says this. And he charged him to tell no one, okay, now I'm going to skip that. I'm going to lump that with the 15th and 16th verses. And basically we're going to cover those verses in the after church because there's sort of a sideline there that is so hugely important and that is the devastating effect that, the the devastating effect that sometimes well-meaning Christians are having on the kingdom of God. So that's one thing we're going to look at a little bit later on but here's what I want you to see. Jesus says to the man, "Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them." Okay? Now again, what, 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 what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing that? Is he saying that the healing's not complete? Is this a healing sort of like that ninth chapter of John when the man born blind, Jesus spit and put mud on his eyes and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. And, and, and then he saw, is that the kind of thing that is kind of partially cleansed now and you have to go to the priest for the completion of it? No. He's completely healed. There's nothing left to heal in this man. When Jesus healed, it's immediate and it's complete. There's another reason that he wants to send him in. Well, actually, there are several reasons. One, this is necessary for the man to re enter society. And this this was the law of Moses, and this was the law that's in place. And so, in other words, you're going to have to go, and you're going to have to go through ceremonial cleansing. You're going to have to make sacrifices. There was a whole prescribed way that someone who has had a skin disease that now has been cured from it, that the priest would be the one, here's the important word, the priest would be the one to declare the man clean. Okay? He would go through the process and the priest would declare this man is clean. Okay, So that was absolutely necessary for him to go through that process in order for him to be able to, to re-enter um, society. The second reason that I think Jesus is doing it is to perfectly fulfill the law. Everywhere in his ministry, you may remember when he got baptized and John the Baptist came and looked at him and he says, you should be baptizing me and not me baptizing you. Do you remember what Jesus said? Let it be so for now to what? To fulfill the law. All righteousness. Let's do it right. Let's stay within the law because I have a perfect life to live. Okay? And everything that I do is going to be perfect. So he sends the man there to fulfill the law as it was established at that time. But there's still something else. And this is the beautiful part of it. And I hope that I can express it to you just right in other words, when Jesus sends the man to Jerusalem, an arduous trip, and he says, I want you to go and present yourself to the priest so that the priest can declare you as being cleansed. Well, what does that mean? It means that once the man was declared cleansed, he could re-enter the covenant community. And when he was allowed to re-enter the covenant community out of the darkness into the light, then he was allowed to go into the temple where he was banned as a leper. And because he can go into the temple, now he could stand in the place where God came to meet his people, the presence of God. And in that temple, he is able to make sacrifices to atone for his ongoing sins and therefore find relationship and reconciliation. Reconciliation with the Holy God. You got that? The priest declared him as clean. So that he could re-enter the covenant community. So that he could go to the temple. So that he could make his sacrifices. So that he could stand in the presence of God. So that reconciliation could occur. Wow. This This is a beautiful, beautiful image of what Jesus does for us. You see how Luke has explained to you what the good news is? As I said, I'm going to kind of jump over these last couple of verses. It's not because they're unimportant. It's because they're going to lead me down another path. And and I want to stay right where I am. All through his book, Luke has been preparing us for the good news. He's been preparing. In fact... What should have happened if we were reading this straight through is we would be developing sort of a hunger. Uh, Okay, wait a minute. What is the good news? Because you remember going all the way back to second chapter when the Shekinah glory of God shone for the for the shepherds. uh, Miss Stacy read just after that. But when they first came down, what did the shepherds say to the men? Fear not for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, doesn't tell us what the good news is, except for the fact that unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem a Savior that is Christ the Lord. So in other words, at this particular point in time, the good news is the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the arrival of the Messiah. But he doesn't go into specifics. We still don't know what the good news is. It's vague and undefined. And then, of course, we get to that synagogue in Nazareth once again. Jesus reads from Messiah. I mean, from Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. So what's the good news at this time? Well, it is to release the captive. It is to open the eyes of the blind. It is to preach uh, um, 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 uh, liberty to those who are oppressed and to wipe the ledgers clean as far as your guilt is concerned. But still, how's he going to do that? What? what what's the process by where you're going to bring this about he doesn't he tells us what he's going to do but he doesn't tell us how he's going to do it and then once again in that 43rd verse we already read it once i must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well for i was sent for this purpose this is how important the good news is i was actually sent to tell you god sent me so i can tell you there's good news in your future so what is the good news well, before he tells us what it is, he tells us what's going to happen as a result. He takes us out to the Sea of Galilee on a fishing expedition. And the disciples throw their net in and they catch a huge amount of fish. What did Jesus say after they had done that? He said, fear not. From now on, you'll be what? Catching men. And, and, and what did they catch that fish in? The net. And what's the net that's going to catch men? good news. You see how we're all primed? (laughs) How we're all waiting? And now he goes into the story of the the leper. Now, once again, let me just kind of summarize what we've read about this leper. We have a person, a pitiful man who is Inundated with a horrible life-ending disease that consumes them and it separates them from the society. It puts them under the curse of God okay? Now, he falls down at the feet of Jesus. He calls him Lord. He recognizes in his humility and his reverence and his subservience that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the one who can actually save him, who can cleanse him. And he says, if you will, if it is your sovereign will, I can't do it. I am perfectly and completely incapable of saving myself, of taking one single speck of this this leprosy off of me. So therefore, I Throw myself at your feet. I subservient my. I submit myself to you. I surrender myself to you, and I beg for your mercy that you will cleanse me. Because I know you can. You see, I've got faith, but I, I, I'm not going to hold you and say that you have to save me because of my faith. I I, I appeal to your sovereignty. And what does Jesus say? I will be clean. Does that tell you anything about Jesus? What it tells me is that if you come to Jesus in repentance and subservience and humility and you recognize him as Lord and Savior, I can tell you on the authority of scripture you will be saved. Because that's exactly what happens to this man. Jesus says, "I will and I can. I am anxious." Save you. And so, of course, he sends him finally into the uh, into Jerusalem so that he will be declared clean, so that he can, as I said, reenter society, go to the temple, have relationship with God. So, what does this mean? What does it mean to you, both believers and non believers? This is a powerful, powerful passage. First of all, whether you like it or not, and I said this before, I'll reiterate it now. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you choose to believe it or not, this leper is you. And it is me. This is us in our fallen state. I mean, everything about this leper in his physical state is something that is perfectly reflected in our spiritual state. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is no possibility that we can fix ourselves. None whatsoever. We are lost. We are terminally, eternally lost. Just as this man had before him nothing but a miserable life of suffering and then a grisly death. We have nothing in front of us except for judgment and condemnation and an eternity of damnation. That is what we have to look forward to in our fallen state. Now, the big difference between us and this man is that he knew it. He understood that he was incapable of saving or fixing or cleansing himself. And so he threw himself at the foot of Jesus and begged for his mercy and said, Lord, if you will, you can do it. I believe, I have belief. That belief didn't come from him. But I believe that you can do it. But it is your choice. It is your work. You're the one that regenerates me. You're the one that will cause me to be born again. I can't do it myself. And, and do you understand what the man has recognized? He recognizes his needs for a savior. And, and, and like I said earlier, I think in my opening prayer, if there's only one thing that you take with you today, please let that be it. <laughs> You'll never be saved if you don't realize your need for a savior, folks. It's just that simple. If you think you can save yourself, if you think you're a pretty decent person, if you think that your righteousness is anything before God, guess what? You're a filthy, condemned, decomposing leper in the eyes of God. You cannot fix yourself. You must, in order to be saved, you must come to the realization at some time in your life that you desperately need a savior. And then not just any savior. But the biblical Lord Jesus Christ, because that's who he throws himself at the foot of and that's who he calls Lord. Oh, there are a lot of Jesuses out there. Jesuses that are idols made of our own manufacture. Jesus who is not holy. Jesus who does not hold us accountable. Jesus who uh, uh, who subserviates himself to us more than anything else. Those are not the Jesus that are going to save you. Brothers and sisters, there's only one Jesus that will ever save you. That is the biblical Jesus who went to the cross as a substitutional, sacrificial atonement for you. That's the only Jesus who will save you. And it is at his feet you must throw yourself. Because if you do, I can tell you on the authority of scripture along with Paul the apostle. If you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But it's got to be the right Jesus. And it's got to be in humility. Notice what Isaiah says in his 66th verse, God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. God says this. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This lowly leper is showing us repentance. And and, and as I said, something amazing happens. Two parts. Two things happen. Okay, first of all, the disease is eradicated. Okay, we're going to talk more about that next week. The forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. As that substitutional sacrificial atonement. He took your sins upon his shoulders. And God poured his fierce wrath instead of on you, on his sins. That's what atonement means. It's paid for. But let me also get really personal and sort of in your face here. That alone will not allow you to stand in the presence of God. Jesus says, be perfect therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is one standard and only one standard of those who will be reconciled with God. And that is those who are perfect. And you're not. You never will be. Even when your sins are forgiven. And you have a glorified body. You have a history on earth of egregious sinfulness. So you will never be reconciled with God unless you are declared Clean, unless you are declared righteous. Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he does on the cross. He declares you as righteous. That's why it's so important. He goes as a perfect sacrifice. Just as your sin was imputed from your first federal head when you were in Adam, now because you are in Christ, his righteousness imputed to you. Another way to look at it is a robe of righteousness. Unless you have that robe, you will not stand in the presence of God because your righteousness are nothing but filthy rags before him. There is nothing that you can do that he will consider to be righteous in his eyes except to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And then when he looks upon you, he looks upon the righteousness of his son and the blood that he spilled on our account and the punishment that has already been meted out to him. And therefore, when he sees that righteousness, he says, Child, come to me. You see, Jesus came to unite us to the Father, not to separate us. And that is the reason the promises tell us that we will be in the presence of God for an eternity because we have the righteousness of Christ. So let me leave you with this, the lessons that we gain from this leper. They're real simple. It's just where Luke put them. The real simple one is you've you got to be perfect, folks. Folks. God himself says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. Peter reflects it in his letter. Holiness is the only standard for anyone who will stand before God. How do you get holiness? Jesus says, you're not going to get it yourself. You must be born again. What he said to Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven either. So your righteousness will not do it all. And the leper says that the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. The apostle Peter tells you this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved other than the name of the Lord, Kyrios, Jesus Christ, who when you in repentance and humility throw yourself at his feet and beg for mercy and say, Lord, save me. I believe in you and I will follow you as my Lord and Savior. He says, I will be clean. Oh, Lord, our machinations are so pathetic. We don't tend to look at ourselves as a poor, lowly, pitiful leper with no ability to save themselves. We like to think of ourselves as being righteous, being good, uh, contributing to our own salvation. But you made it clear that's not the case. It's when we come to you and we recognize your sovereignty. And we repent of our sins and we turn from those sins and, 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 and we lean upon you as our Savior and as our Lord. Lord, if there's anyone in this sanctuary, if there's anyone who is listening uh, later, either just the audio or the video, Lord, we ask your spirit to work in their hearts, to lead them out of the darkness into the light, to bring them back into their fellowship with God's com- uh, covenantal people. And so that he might have or she might have reunion with you, fellowship with you. And so that they might truly be cleansed even as this leper was. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.